Father, I want to thank you for this privilege to be able to get into your word. Father, we believe that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns our thoughts. It discerns the intents of our heart. And we're asking you, God, that you would do that through your spirit, by your word, and that you would greatly encourage us. Father, this isn't a time of judgment by your word. This, is, I believe, is a time of sifting This is a time of speaking truth, of challenge, of call, charge, of encouragement and hope. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would speak to us through your word as we go through these three chapters a little bit from 1 Thessalonians 5. But as we do, Spirit of God, would you teach us and would you show us the relevancy of these truths to this evening? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I saw, as I say, First and Second Thessalonians was written. Get your notepad out. First and Second Thessalonians was written around fifty-one, fifty-two A.D. Probably Paul's first two letters. I mentioned, and we see this at the end of Second Thessalonians, that Paul, by tradition, basically dictates his letters. And then he takes the pen or quill in hand at the very end and gives the final greeting or salutation or if for us it would be like, send my love to so-and-so. And that's what he does. And this is very traditional. He does this in this letter. He says with every letter that he writes. But um, as we now get into first and second, Thess- we got into first Thessalonians last week, second Thessalonians this week, we're going to see a parallel between them. It's as if Paul, as he is writing them, says, you know what, I I think I need to go a little bit more in depth with this next letter. And that's what we find that he does. So he spends a chapter and a half dealing again with the day of the Lord that he dealt with in 1 Thessalonians, and then the last chapter and a half dealing with specific charges, and he really hones in on one particular one, though he does touch on several, that we're going to look at, and he does so rather forcefully. And we're going to see how that, see why that is and the significance, at least then, and its relevance today. Um, so last week we saw 1 Thessalonians divided up into two sections. The first three chapters, remember, he just basically shared his heart. He said, this is, this is our concern for you. And this is why we sent Timothy to go see how you were. He came back. And when he came back, we were so on the edge of our seats, excited to hear the good news. You're standing firm. Now, try to remember from last week, why was he so concerned? Why was he so concerned that, uh, he needed to send Timothy back to them? To see how they were doing. Do you remember anybody? What was going on there? Give it a shot, hello. Um, they, they weren't able to reach the Thessalonians because Satan had kept on stopping them. Okay, Satan kept on stopping them. But see, I mean, you're on the right track there. See, but they wanted to go back. Satan kept them from going back. But why did they want to go back? I mean... It was important. It was so important. Satan recognized how important it was, and he stood in their pathway so that they couldn't until finally, or at least Paul couldn't. But you see, God had a little different plan at a little different time, 
And then Timothy went back. But again, why? Why did they go back? Do you remember? Why did Paul have to leave in the first place? Hello? Give it a shot. Yes, yes, but why? Victoria? Severe persecution. And he even uses that phrase, severe persecution, in First Thessalonians. And because of this, this, these trials, can I, can I ask you, do you know of anyone who has been through, maybe not persecution, because that is suffering for Jesus, because you're making a stand for Jesus, but just going through trials and struggles and heartaches, do you know of anyone who just wandered off from the Lord because of what they went through? Anybody? Hands? Yeah, but, but yes, that would be a good, you don't know him personally, so because I'm kind of looking for, unless you've got an inroad that I don't know about, but uh, I'm looking for personal examples. And, and so this is Paul's heart. They're going through this trial. They're trying to stand for Jesus and they're being beaten. They're being severely persecuted. He doesn't go into details, but he has to flee for his life. So you can only imagine what they've gone through. They're staying there. He left. They're staying there. But how did they go through those severe persecutions? Did they run away from the Lord? Did they throw the towel in? What did they do? Help me out. You don't have to use a, a phrase, but just generally, what did they, what did they do? They stood strong. They, yeah, each other. yeah, yeah. They stood strong. They stood strong. <clears throat> All right, and so he spends three chapters sharing his heart, and then the last two chapters he spends time giving them some exhortations and a challenge about the day of the Lord. He now, in Second Thessalonians, spends time talking about the day of the Lord. And again, some a reiteration we're going to see of First Thessalonians 5 amplifies it, goes into more detail, because apparently it's a significant problem. All right? So, <clears throat> let me ask you this. Why do you suppose... The severe persecution is brought up in the very beginning. Do you remember that? In the first few verses, he talks about their persecution. Why does Paul choose to address the day of the Lord? Mikilana. No, go for it. To set so that they don't set their sight on here and now, but in heaven. And Good. the long term, it'll help them get through the short, short term. <clears throat> okay. Term. All right. Good. Good. And Adding. also, like I, I think you can sometimes miss the lessons that God is trying to teach you in the short term and the grace that he has for you in the short term if you think it's about the end game. Okay. Because they were so focused on, oh, the day of the Lord is about to come. We're not going to work. We're not going to do any of this stuff. And so they were missing out on God's grace flowing in them and through them to withstand the trials, to continue working through the trials and everything like that. Okay. 
Yeah, some of them jokingly refer to the what they did was they, they had second coming parties. Just kind of kick back, relax. We'll just shift life into neutral. Kind of hang back. Jesus is coming soon anyway. And in the face of persecution, that would be pretty easy. Hey, the fire's hot. Let me take a step back. And now he gets into something here because the first, there's certain aspects of the day of the Lord that I want us to walk through. But he gets into right away the day of judgment. And that's a part of the day of the Lord. But he does that because if you're being persecuted, if someone's standing in your face saying, how dare you judge me? And I believe in God. It's just a completely different God than what you believe in. Who do you think you are saying Jesus is the only way? I think you need to be tolerant of other people and other religions. I think we need to celebrate all religions. I think we need to just let, maybe we just need to back away from religion and your truth is, is your truth and my truth is my truth. Okay. And everybody has their own truth. Have you ever heard this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, and, and when you were being persecuted, there is something inside of you that Paul calls the flesh that wants to seek revenge, that wants to get in their face. Oh yeah? Well, let's get into an argument. Oh yeah? And, and we push back. And Paul says, you know what? You don't need to worry about them because their day of judgment is coming. If God doesn't bring discipline, punishment, judgment in their lives, this side of judgment or, or this side of the second coming of Jesus, he will then. Okay. Actually, when they die, they will be facing um, some punishment that second Peter gets into. It's kind of the holding place. We call it Hades. But... So he wants to encourage them on the one hand, hang in there. But on the other, he's, he's saying, you know, don't worry about them. Okay. Just, just keep your focus. Um, someone this morning had to, well, Mickey Lana and her family and Jean came to help you. And, and uh, a situation arose in which a gentleman had a lot of very unkind things to say. And I just told Mickey Lana and those with her, I said, you know what? Just turn a deaf ear to that. Just tune it out like white noise and just keep focused on what you need to be focused on. And Paul is basically saying that. Just tune it out. Okay. Hang in there. Jesus is coming. Their just desserts are, are on the way as well. What I want to do is actually, I want to jump into chapter two, just a few verses at, to set the tone of what the day of the Lord is. And I want us to kind of fill in some blanks. I want us to ask, what does the day of the Lord entail? So I'm just going to read a few verses there. Actually, the first several in chapter two, and I'm reading from the NIV. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until 
the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. All right. Let me ask you this. Just from what we read, what events are a part of the day of the Lord? So come, well, last week, didn't we read that it said the day of the Lord coming to come? Okay, so what are some of those things that's going to happen on the day of the Lord? I'm sorry? One more time. Plagues. 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 Well, according to this passage right here. This passage is only talking about stuff that happens before it. Not so. What is the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord? Jesus coming. So that's definitely what, what word, do you remember the word? Maybe you wrote it down in your notes from last week. What Greek word is commonly used to refer to the return of Jesus? That, that parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, parousia. It means coming, and it's actually used here in verse 1, chapter 2, oh, and the parousia. And are being gathered to him. Okay, so First Corinthians, excuse me, First Thessalonians 4 dealt with that. So we have Jesus coming back, us being gathered to him. We usually don't use that phrasing, us being gathered to him. What's the more common phrase? No? No? The resurrection. Okay? This is the resurrection. I mean... This, remember, who's coming with Jesus? All those who have already believed in him. Okay? Comes with him, their spirits or souls do, do. And then those who are dead in Christ are raised first. And then those who are alive and remain will be caught up with him to meet him in the air. Obviously in their resurrected bodies. So the resurrection happens at this time. Um, <clears throat> so that's what he means by us being gathered to him. We receive our resurrection bodies. So the parousia, the resurrection, and from chapter one, what else fits into this category called the day of the Lord? From memory, is it the judgment? The judgment. Very good. So now we have the parousia or the return of Christ. We have the resurrection we have the judgment, and at least by the judgment, the all the dead are raised, Hades is emptied, the grave, that is the dead, is the death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire right after the judgment. So Hades has to be emptied, and they receive their resurrected bodies. Who? is in Hades at the day. That's right. So everyone who did not choose to follow Christ, who are not born again, who are not true believers in Jesus, when they died, they don't go to be with the Lord in their spirit. Their spirit goes to Hades. 
And Second Peter 2 says they are kept there, uh, enduring punishment, awaiting the day of judgment. So right now, Hades is packed with people. Well, I don't know if it's packed. It's filled with people who have rejected Christ, turned, not followed God, and did life their way. They would, we would call them the lost or unbelievers. Jesus gave a parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man had, did not have a repentant heart that followed the Lord. When he died, he found himself in Hades. Now, your version in Luke 16 probably uses the word hell. An unfortunate rendering because there is a difference between Hades and hell that we're going to get into. All right. Um, maybe not a big one, but it, there is a difference. So the rich man is in Hades. He apparently can see Lazarus across this gulf. He can recognize him. And well, I'm not going to get into the show, but he is, he is in fire and burning and he just wants a drop of water on his tongue. That's all he wants. And he can't get that. So this concept of fire, this punishment. All right, so we have the parousia. We have the resurrection. We have the judgment. Now, that's all that we see here. But what we learn later, uh, especially, for example, in Second Peter, is that the day of the Lord will also include the destruction of this earth and all of the heavens. They will melt away with fervent heat. And then God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? And that is all called the day of the Lord or the day of God. It is, it could happen, all of this could happen. Boom, 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 boom. All of this could happen like that. Now, my purpose is not to get into my personal view of the millennium, but I truly believe that when you lay out the day of the Lord, and it includes all of these things, the parousia, the resurrection, the judgment, the destruction of the earth, and a new heavens and a new earth, you're left with this unanswered question, where does a thousand years fit in? Because apparently, according to a premillennialist view, that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth occurs between the resurrection and the judgment. Um, such that there are two resurrections, actually. There's a resurrection of the righteous before the thousand years and the resurrection of the unrighteous at the end of the thousand years. Um, but when, when you go through these passages, you begin to realize, oh, wait a second, no, they are... The, the, one is very hard-pressed to shoehorn a thousand years in here. So it then would challenge us when we come across the only scripture passage in the New Testament that talks about a thousand years, which is Revelation 20. I think we need to take a step back and reevaluate how do we actually interpret that passage. But we're not going to do that tonight. All right. Um Jesus, it says, in this day of judgment, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to come back with blazing fire. See that in verse 7, blazing fire 
with his powerful angels. Now, First Thessalonians 4 says that he comes back with the saints. All right? Um, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Chapter 4, verse 14. This focuses on the powerful angels. So we have to at least say, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be angels, there's going to be a trumpet, loud command, archangel, and there's going to be the saints. Okay, so angels and the saints coming back with Jesus at the end of the age, or the consummation of the ages, okay? All right, that's kind of wrapping all of human history on earth up on the day of the Lord, okay? Now, we touched on the rapture, and I just want us to see again Paul reiterating this day of judgment, and when we look at it, I think we're going to see something that gives us some insight. Just with regard to that issue, that question about the rapture that we looked at last week. Now, again, the reason why Paul mentions the judgment to the Thessalonians is because they've persecuted them and their time for punishment, as they've been punishing the Christian Thessalonians, their time of punishment is going to come. All right. Now, um, when Jesus comes back with his powerful angels, this is when they will suffer. This is the judgment. It happens when Jesus comes back. It doesn't happen a thousand years later. It happens when he comes back. It doesn't happen seven years before he comes back doesn't happen or, or, or it doesn't happen excuse me seven years after he comes back the rapture it happens when he comes back so in all honesty if we're going to pull out our prophecy charts and end times charts i i truly think that paul's end time view his prophecy chart would be really simple really simple it's the day of the lord the parousia, the resurrection, the judgment, the um, the destruction of the earth and the universe, and its remaking. To back to what paradise was. Okay, a restoration, if you will. Um, some people have uh, truly wrestled with this concept of everlasting destruction. Do you see that in chapter 1 there? In verse 8, excuse me, verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. This, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Now, this basically is talking about hell. Just keep your finger here and go to Revelation chapter 20. 
Revelation 20 talks about hell. Let me just say this. Jesus said, do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can both kill the body and throw both body and soul into hell. Hey, Jim. So that's who we should fear. So what gets cast into hell? Just your soul? No, body and soul. Okay. Hades is just our spirit. Where's our body? When we die, if we have rejected Christ, our body's in the grave. It's in the ground. It's decomposing. It's like dust in the wind. However, our spirit, the spirit of the ungodly, goes to Hades and is being punished. Now, it says here in chapter 20, verse 13, he says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Death and Hades is is. John just repeating himself, death and Hades. I think what he's trying to say here is if Hades has our spirits, death, remember no man can praise God in death. Death is the grave. Death is where the body is. Death is silent. The grave is silent. It's That's a place of nothing, dead, decomposing. The spirit has either risen to be with the Lord or is if you can, descended to suffer in, in Hades. And so what, he, what, what John is getting at here then is that death, that is the grave, the bodies, and Hades, where the soul is, has been emptied, and these people are being judged. They're, they're resurrected, of course, body and spirit, and they're being judged, and then their body and spirit, or body and soul, is going to be cast into the lake of fire, the second death, which is hell. That is what we encounter here, the everlasting destruction. So here's now my question. Everlasting destruction. A lot of people in our day that you will meet at Stetson, at a number of UCF, wherever you go at your workplace, they have a big problem with hell. Can anyone tell us why they have a big problem with hell? Stephen, give it a shot. Yeah, from the people that I have talked to, like, they say, why would a loving, merciful God, like, torment everyone, or these people for eternity, why not just, like, annihilate them and be done with it? Okay. Exactly. Diego, comments? Well, some other people have uh, also a different argument where they say, so if I don't follow him, if I don't love your God, he's going to punish me because you know, that I, like, I have to do whatever he wants and that's not love. Like He doesn't give me a free will to not follow him and still go to heaven. People actually reason with that, which is logical. Okay. Yeah, well, we actually face that in America. You can either follow the laws of America or you can go to jail. So that's the concept of punishment. In my home, you can either follow the rules in the home or there is some discipline. Now, my kids are older, so that discipline is not necessarily, hey, let's go to the bathroom, take care of this. But the this concept of hell is everlasting destruction. 
Now, some, this has rubbed the wrong way so much that they have basically sought to erase hell. Hell is a metaphor for punishment, and they might be punished, but in their punishment, they will be given a second chance to repent. Oh my goodness, who wouldn't repent after experiencing one day in hell? But when when uh, the rich man was in Hades, and he says, "Can what can I do? There was no solution that was offered him. He said, can, can Lazarus just dip his finger in water and touch my tongue? Sorry, there's a big gulf and chasm that can't be crossed. Well, then can someone be sent back from this place, from the dead, and go and warn my brothers and my family so they don't end up in this place with me? And that solution is shot down because basically Jesus was that one who rose from the dead and they still didn't believe. Now, the solution, well, rich man, all you have to do right now is just repent. You'll be good. You'll be able to go over there, but it can't be crossed. Once you're there, you're there for good. There's no second chance. Very popular teaching in our day. Rob Bell embraced it. It's not just Rob Bell, though. It's many people because they can't deal with this concept of everlasting hell. Well, I can understand sending someone to prison, but, you know, give them a second chance. Well, I'm sorry, but five life sentences? Where's the second chance in that? And many in America are sent to jail forever. Okay? There's no second chance for them. Okay, so if people—very good question. If people, if, if, if when people are f faced with this possible solution, well, maybe hell's a metaphor. Maybe there's a second chance. The more they study the scriptures, they realize, no, 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 that can't be true. I mean, there's so much I have to pull up my huge eraser and erase in the New Testament. So here's now my second option. This concept of everlasting destruction is annihilation, everlasting annihilation. So some people believe that you go to hell and you burn up and you die and you're immediately obliterated. Just like you light a piece of paper on fire, it burns up, it no longer exists. Can I just say, is that true, by the way, that the paper no longer exists? It's a different form, okay. There's no such thing as something ceasing to exist. Law, the, the theory of thermodynamics, law of thermodynamics tells us that it only changes form. Its energy only changes. It does not cease. Matter cannot be created or destroyed unless you're God. Well, that's not what the law says. It just says it can't be created or destroyed. Apart from a miracle, apart from God's intervention, it can be created. So every example that an annihilationist, that's the term I'm going to use for the people who hold this view, that they give, it falls flat because even in the real world, that's not true. Okay? Now, so maybe their consciousness will cease to exist. And the reason why they propose this is because of this word destruction. Well, if you're destroyed, then you're no longer living. You're no longer, you're like 
okay? You're in cryo-freeze or you're whatever. You're like, you're not, you're, you're not conscious. Sorry, bad analogy there. You're, you're not conscious. You're, you're gone. Some people believe that that happens. Annihilationists believe that happens right away. Some others, um, and I would say even well-meaning Christians, Say that, no, you suffer in hell for a very long time, like maybe a million years, and then you're annihilated. Kind of failed. To, wow, a million years. That is, and if you're, if you're choosing annihilation to appeal to the love of God, what's a million years? The fires of hell beyond a day. How could a loving God, if this is our problem, okay, how, even a day. But see, in God's mind, and he thinks so very differently than fallen man, this truly is justice. Wow. This is justice. Because God is just and does not do anything apart from what is just. Now, I'm not saying what is just according to my definition or your definition. Because you and I are fallen and we're going to think like fallen people. If you were to ask a criminal, okay, so five counts of murder... How long do you think you should be in prison? What do you think they're going to say? <laughs> Parole in two years, right? No, you never ask a criminal how long they think they should be punished. They're not going to share with you what, what's truly justice. Now, the parents of the person he killed, mm, that's going to approximate justice a little better. And... God is thoroughly just. Whatever view we take on this, it must be just. All right. Now, this concept of destruction, it is used, this Greek word for destruction is used when uh, Mary breaks the alabaster jar. She destroys the alabaster jar. Did that alabaster jar suddenly disappear? What does it mean when that alabaster jar was destroyed or ruined? What happened to it? It broke. It's broken. Okay. And it was not obliterated. It did not, it was not annihilated or ceased to exist. Um, the it, it talks about the fires of hell, the smoke from hell rising forever and ever. What do you think that says with regard to this issue? If something is burning forever and ever, what does that tell you? Okay, what doesn't end? The burning doesn't end. The object that's being burnt is continually burning. Okay, and it is never completely consumed. It never stops existing. It burns forever. Okay. Now you've heard me share this, and I'm going to throw this out before I move on. But when we're talking about the justice of God, if sin is an offense to God, then what type of sin is an offense against the eternal holiness of God? 
what type of offense is... So if, if sin is an offense to the holiness of God, what type of an offense is um, offensive to the eternal holiness of God? Okay. Or an infinite offense. So God is holy, but he is infinitely holy. Because that's the nature of God. So if my sin offends him, my sin is an, is an infinite offense. So if I go to the store and I just steal something, it takes me 10 minutes to walk into that store and put a pack of baseball cards with bubble gum. True story, because I used to do this when I was 8, or eight to 10 years old. Cardboard bubblegum. What was I thinking? Ugh. Ugh. But yeah, so we traded the baseball cards. Blah, blah, blah. So wrong. I repented when I became a Christian years later. And that took me 10 minutes. Should I have gotten caught, they wouldn't say, Mike, you deserve the death penalty. And I would be very grateful that they did not give me the death penalty. I was almost caught one time, by the way. Um, and I didn't die. So, but someone who pulls the trigger of a gun and kills someone with malicious intent, first degree murder, they're put on death row to die. How long did it till them, take them to kill them? About one to two seconds to pull that trigger. That's it. They're dead. So here's a crime that takes 10 minutes and the punishment is minor. Here's another crime that takes two seconds and they deserve the death penalty. You see, when people say, well, if I sin for 70 or 80 years, shouldn't I only be punished in hell for 70 to 80 years? You see, it has nothing to do with this. It doesn't matter how long it took you to sin in stealing those baseball cards. That doesn't determine how, what type of punishment. What determines it is the offense of that crime. Stealing baseball cards, no big deal. The store is out 25 cents. Yeah, that's all they cost back then. However, killing somebody is a greater offense, so the punishment is greater. Now, what happens if my offense is an eternal offense? What type of punishment should I get? An eternal punishment. Now, do you see the justice of hell? So, it could not rely on just simply a man dying for my infinite offense. That would not be sufficient. Because I would spend all of eternity paying for my infinite offense. And I'm a man. I'm a finite man. The only way for my infinite offense to be paid for is by an infinite man. Enter Jesus, the infinite God-man who came to earth to take the punishment of hell that you deserved, okay? And that punishment that brought us peace was upon him, Isaiah says, 700 years before it actually happened, he wrote. So the concept of everlasting destruction is truly just. 
It's just in our warped, warped, fallen thinking, it doesn't feel that way. How could a loving God send someone to... Well, see, God is not just loving. He is actually holy, holy, holy. He is infinitely holy. And get a load of this. If God is characterized as holy, that's an adjective, okay? It describes him. When it talks about love, it doesn't just say God is loving. It says God is love. The essence of God is love. He's not just loving. Now, I'm I'm not going to say the essence of God is not holiness, but the Bible just never says that. It does say he's holy. So I'm going to suggest that God's holiness, his justice, and this concept, therefore, of everlasting destruction flows from the very nature of who God is as a loving God. So, guys, here's the bottom line. You are going to read scripture passages and theological concepts, and you're going to say, how is that just? Or how does that make sense? Or why would a loving God allow so much heartache and death and disease and children, even infants, suffering and dying, suffering of starvation, which can happen over a year time or years time, malnourishment to the point where their brains just stop functioning. How can a loving God allow that? Well, excuse me, but this world's fallen condition is not God's fault. So the one who asked that question, I would like to ask them. So why is it that you sin again? Because this is the real reason. We sin. And these are the natural consequences of it. But God has a, an awesome, awesome rescue plan. And a superior retirement plan. So that this concept of everlasting destruction can rub us the wrong way. But what theologians are doing today, and it is a serious mistake, is they take what man thinks and then take what God says and add to it. And I'm sorry, but if hell doesn't match what I think is just, we're just going to throw it away. You've got to start with the Word of God. What does God say? And if it doesn't match up with what I say, And what I think, guess what needs to change? What I say, what I think. That has to change. What I think, what this world thinks, has got to align itself with what God says and what God thinks. God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Okay? All right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have you just stand and kind of mill around a little bit before we get into the second chapter. Just stand up and stretch your legs and rub the sleepiness from your eyes. Long, hard day at work. I know I still feel pretty exhausted. Okay. I'm going to give you one more minute. And then we're going to reconvene. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab some crazy ones there. Grab them. Crazies. Jim, craisins, do you want some? Okay, grab some uh, food or what have you. Take a seat. We're going to jump now into Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, as soon as I'm done this mouthful. All right. Here we go, gang. Apparently, Paul says, a rumor that was sparked by a letter that he supposedly wrote or a prophecy that was given in some city, filtered around, got to the Thessalonians somehow, and the rumor was this, that the day of the Lord had already come, and you guys missed it. Well, apparently Paul missed it too. Jesus came back, and when he gathered all the believers to him, apparently God didn't, God's favor didn't shine on Paul, and Paul was left as well. So, same with all the Thessalonians. Now, I don't know all the nuances and details of this rumor, because Paul doesn't get into it. But again, what does the day of the Lord consist of? Number one, the... Parousia, the return of Jesus. The what happens before the judgment? The gathering, which we call the resurrection, then the the judgment, and then the destruction of what? Okay, all politicians. No, the the earth and all of the heavens, and then number five in the consummation of the ages, we have the renewed heavens and earth. Paradise restored. <coughs> okay, that's the day of the Lord. Apparently, I mean, that would be absolutely impossible for all of that to have passed them, okay? So maybe just the coming of Jesus was all people thought about concerning the day of the Lord. Other authors of Scripture has helped us fill this in. By the way, those last two, the destruction of the... Um, of the ungodly and the earth and the heavens and the new heavens and new earth, those two things, that is spoken of in first, excuse me, second Peter chapter three, called the day of the Lord or the day of God. So those five things are, are in essence, the day of the Lord. Paul chooses to focus on two things, the parousia and the resurrection. But he says, guys, Apparently, he had taught them when he was with them. Now he reminds them and writes it down so they don't forget. But what two things have to precede the day of the Lord? Okay, the man of lawlessness. The apostasy. Okay, and the Greek word there is actually apostasia. 
So that is a loan word into the English. Now, apostasia, and I'm actually going to tackle that one second, though, even though it comes first in Paul's list here, these two. Apostasia is basically a rebellion. In the New Testament, it's generally a spiritual rebellion, but it can also be understood to be a political rebellion. So a spiritual and or a political rebellion. My personal view is that it's both. Um, but <clears throat> I first want to tackle this concept <coughs> of the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Interesting how it parallels the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same Greek word, apocalypsis. The revelation, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Okay. Um, I want us to see something here. When the man of lawlessness comes, or when he is revealed, he may be on the earth right now, and we don't recognize him. If so, he at one time, at some point, will be revealed. But we see here, and let me put my reading glasses on, verse 4, he says, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I want us to see this concept of takes his seat in the temple of God. That's what the NASB says. The NIV says sets himself up in God's temple. And I personally prefer that reading from the NIV. Um, but it can go either way. This Greek word is kathizo. Kathizo. K-A-T-H-I-Z-O. And the Z in Greek is like a dz, dz, like a D-Z. Kathizo. Now, it can mean and generally means to sit or to set. It can also, however, in a figurative sense, mean to a point, as in to set in. I personally think that's how it's being used here. All right, but the meaning can go either way. So the NASB says he takes his seat in the temple. So it takes the literal meaning of cathedro, sets himself up in God's temple, takes the concept, uh, the figurative concept of a point. He sets himself in. All right. And we actually see this usage in 1 Corinthians 6, 4, in which Paul says, appoint men as judges. Literally, it's cathedral, and it says, set in men as judges. So I believe what Paul is saying is that this man of lawlessness will set himself in, in the temple of God. Let me just repeat that that the man of lawlessness will set himself in in the temple of God. Now, why do why do I say this? I want you to imagine in your minds the temple of God. A literal place or yeah. people? Okay. Very good question. I'm going to come to that in just a moment. If it's a literal temple of God, how would he sit in this temple? Well, for the Jews, he would have to take down the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. They would, by the way, to reconstruct the temple, let's say Herod's temple or Solomon's temple, 
They would have to reconstruct an Ark of the Covenant because that's not anywhere. Um, we lost its location and whereabouts when Nebuchadnezzar in 605 came and ransacked the temple. Some say that Jeremiah took it to Egypt and from there we have Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> All right. Apparently he took it to Tunis, right? Um, and made a staff and had to be so long. Right, yeah. And others believe that he took the Ark of the Temple, the Ark of the Covenant, and hid it somewhere in Jerusalem. Can I just be totally honest with you? I don't care. Because the Ark of the Covenant has no power. It was a figure or a shadow of things to, cr- to come. God does not sit on the mercy seat between the two angels anymore. Where does God sit? In the New Testament, where does God sit? This is really important, church. Okay. Wait, what'd you say? Okay, okay, physically he's in heaven, but understand God sat physically in heaven too, but his abide, his abode on earth was in the ark, on top of the ark of the covenant. On earth, where does Jesus sit? In your heart. That's right. You are a mobile ark of the covenant, if you will. All right? And he is seated on the mercy seat created by the cross. That's why it is a mercy seat. And so he takes up residence in your life, in your spirit, in your heart. Okay, so that's where Jesus is sitting. Now, so the Ark of the Covenant is completely meaningless in our day. If they reconstruct one, I can assure you God will not be sitting there. Apparently, if they're going to reconstruct a temple, they would have to remove the mosque that is there, there, the Dome of the Rock. Apparently, a holy place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And so that's very sacred for them, and they build a mosque around it. And that's true because he was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, and Scripture says Mount Moriah is on Mount Zion. Okay. Now, I want to ask you this question. If God were to have the Jews reconstruct a temple, would God call it the temple of God. Does that sound like a trick question? I'm sorry if it does sound like a trick question. Oh, maybe it is. But I, it's just something to think through. If God, I'm going to take the stand that it would not be called the temple of God. I don't think so. It would, go ahead. I'm sorry, because he's already established that we are. Yes, actually, eight times in the New Testament, but go ahead. All right. In Paul's writings, he uses this phrase, the temple of God, to mean only one thing. He never refers to the actual temple, ever, except if this might be the one time that you, he does it, he uses it eight times. And if this is a literal temple, and it could be, I could be wrong. All right. I'm going to say that one more time for the record. I could be wrong. Uh, because this is, the, the, we're, ju- we're trying to gather this information. There's not like a ton of stuff written in the scriptures about this. But I, I do think that this is important for us to understand. That's the only reason why I'm touching on this. Because we may live in the day of the rebellion or the apostasia and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. 
And Paul writes it to the Thessalonians because he wants, if that were to happen in their day, he wants them to be able to recognize it. I think every generation needs to be able to recognize it. But if we misunderstand it, guess what? We're not going to recognize it. So I'm wanting to be fair with this. Paul uses the term the temple of God. Not just the temple, but the temple of God. And that's the phrase. He never uses the temple by itself. He always talks about the temple of God, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he uses it eight times to refer either to the individual Christian, as a mobile ark of God, by the way, or the corporate body of Christ. In Ephesians, Ephesians, yeah, I'm going to get there. Yes, 2.21, it says, In him, the whole building is joined. We are the whole building. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The corporate church body of believers, true believers, in Jesus Christ, okay? And outside of this passage, Paul always uses the temple of the Lord or the temple of God or the temple of the Holy Spirit to refer to where God takes up residence on earth. I want you to turn, keep your fingers here, but turn to Hebrews 8.13. In Hebrews, wow, what a deep, rich book. Awesome. You, you, you want to just find yourself thinking and thinking about what you're thinking, then this is an amazing book and really goes into depth. And there is, every time you read it, I can promise you, you're going to find not just one or two, but so many things that just cause you to go deeper and deeper and deeper, all right? And that's just the nature of this book. Now, I mean, all of Scripture is that way, but this book especially. Hebrews talks about how Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant. Chapter 10, that they were shadows. The sacrifices were shadows, okay? The sacrifice of bulls could only um, be a reminder of our sin and could never take away our sin. So Jesus dying once... Etc. Etc. Okay, so his sacrifice was sufficient, such that he no longer stands, but he sits. Job done. All right, it is finished. Remember, that's what he said on the cross. It is finished. Done. Now, these sacrifices, and it's not just the sacrifices; it's the temple that he talks about in chapter nine. It is the whole ceremonial system of Israel. The Old Covenant. This is what he says in verse 13. By calling this covenant new, the new covenant, in his blood, he has made the first one obsolete. What does the word obsolete mean? I'm sorry? Not usable, okay? Irrelevant. Obsolete. When something becomes obsolete, It's because nobody buys the product anymore because they don't need it anymore. It is that item on the shelf of a store collecting dust that's been there 10 years. It becomes a relic. No one needs it anymore because society has changed and uses something totally different. Cheaper, more advanced, better, etc. No need for it. Obsolete. Okay? And then he says, 
And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, if you read through the book of Hebrews, you will notice that he refers to the temple in the present tense, the priests in the present tense. I truly believe the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD. At 70 AD, the priesthood disappeared. The chief priests, the high priests, they were all from the uh, religious group called the Sadducees. Sadducees totally disappeared after 70 AD, obliterated, no more, never to rise its head again. They were the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits, etc. Number two, the temple was completely destroyed. In 130, it was either 136 or 139, they tried to start it and then the Romans came and destroyed it again. But it has never been rebuilt. The altar, the brazen altar, never rebuilt. The ten lavers, the sea with the four oxen that hold it up, destroyed, never rebuilt, never recast. The temple was no more. What was obsolete and is aging will soon disappear. Yep, absolutely right. What a strong prophetic word. In 70 AD, it completely disappeared. Why do you think God allowed it to disappear? Mickey Lana, go for it. Well, I mean, because it makes it much more obvious that people can't go back to look at that as the way anymore. Those sacrifices. Yes. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. It's gone. So it helps them to look to something else. So why is this gone? Yes. And God's not allowing them it to be reestablished. So I think it helps them to not return back to it. For almost 2,000 years, it has not been in existence. Rose? There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Ark of the Covenant would be done away with and that men wouldn't even look for it or ask for it anymore. Okay, good. I like that scripture passage, if you could find that. Um, You don't have to take your time right now to find it, but sometime I'd like to uh, get that scripture. Hallel? It's obsolete. You can't use it anymore. The, the sacrificing of the animals is absolutely non-beneficial. And in Galatians 4, we, we'll get to that next week, by the way. Read Galatians. In Galatians 4, he says, I'm really concerned about you because you're already starting to go back to feasts and festivals and all of this and following the Jewish system again. I am really concerned that you're going to fall from grace. Because you're reestablishing the law. The reconstruction of the temple would be a reestablishment of the law that's been done away with because it was obsolete. It disappeared because it was no longer needed and would actually be a hindrance. So I'm going to suggest to you that these shadows, the temple was a shadow, the brazen altar, sacrifices, all of this was a shadow. Why, if it's reconstructed by the Jews, would Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, ever call it the temple of God. 
It might be a temple, but I can assure you it will not be the temple of God. Do you understand? that I really want to press this point. I'm going to suggest then that the man of lawlessness sets himself in in the believing church. And, and the reason why this is significant is because he, he speaks of the apostasy and is it because he is a part of that apostasy? He creates it. He leads the apostasy. We, we don't know. But the apostasy and the man of lawlessness, they go like hand in glove the way Paul talks about it here. An apostasy then would mean a turning away from the Lord. Now, when Jesus talks about the signs of his coming, he does talk about this in Matthew 24. And he, he says that uh, at that time, Matthew 24, 10 through 14, I'm only going to read this phrase, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. Many will turn away. So why is the apostasy so notable? Notable. It has a definite article in front of it. The apostasy. The apostasy. It, it, that means there is an emphasis. It's like, you, do you understand what I mean? When you call like the Great Depression, means there was only one. And it was really significant. The most significant that America's ever experienced. So it is the Great Depression. Not one of many. The apostasy is because I believe there is going to be such a global revival that many will come professing to know Christ, but will not. Because we will always have weeds among the wheat. So many wheat or many unbelievers will come become believers. They will be the wheat in the field, but there will be many weeds in the field as well touting themselves to be Christians. That is the concept of Darnell, if you remember uh, me preaching on this. The Darnell looked just like the wheat until the head opens. And then when you look at the head, the, the head of wheat and the head of Darnell look quite different. They're both white and, I don't know how to, fluffy, frilly, uh, whatever. Um, but the Darnell is a bunch of nothing. Tiny seeds and what a nuisance, but wheat, actually the kernels get larger and you can break the husks and eat it. You can't do that with Darnell. There's a lot of goodness in the wheat and a lot of nothing in the Darnell. That's significant. But they, the Darnell will look just like the wheat until the head opens. There's going to come a time, perhaps when the man of lawlessness is revealed, in which the heart of people who don't know Jesus will want to follow him. And he will eventually say, I am your savior. He will be a leader in the church, perhaps a leader in the global revival. Maybe he himself will apostatize and turn away from God. I don't know. But he will lead many of the wheat, excuse me, many of, well, many of the wheat astray, the apostasy. Then he will turn to the world and then when we look at what he does with the world, he says, 
The coming of the lawlessness, lawless one, will be accord, in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Who will be deceived by the man of lawlessness? Not the true church. When he sets himself up in the church as God, they're going to say, hey, we have nothing to do with you. And at that point, you can read about it in Revelation 13, it appears at that point that he wages war against the saints, the church. You've rejected me, and I have offered you so much good. I am, whatever need they have for rescuing, maybe he will present himself as a savior of sorts, but he will certainly not save but condemn, lead many astray. And he will, it, it's very possible he may be part of this apostasy, but when he turns to the world, those that choose to follow him will not be the church because the church will not be deceived by him. The true church. The true church will not be deceived by him. Only the world will. Those who are perishing. And why will they be deceived? Why will they follow his lie? It tells us there in this passage. Do you yeah. see it there? Wait, Bec- which one? I mean, what passage? No, okay, in chapter know. two, in chapter two, Second Thessalonians two. I'm sorry. That's right. They and and my version says they refused to love the truth. And there are many false believers today. And they are rejecting so much of the work of the cross and claiming to be Christians, rejecting so much of the Bible as the inspired word of God and coming up with their own thoughts, even erasing hell. And you get a second chance and they're deceiving many. And and I'm not saying that they're the man of lawlessness. I'm not saying that, okay. But they're deceiving many because they do not love the truth. They start with what man thinks, and if God's truth is relevant, that's what I'll believe. But if the Bible talks about hell, that doesn't fit with what I believe, so I'm going to reject hell. And they start with what man thinks, and then they come to the Bible. And God says, nope, you got to start with what I think. you got to love the truth. And we live in a day in which people do not love the truth. Now, I, I need to, to move on here, okay? And because I, I've got just a short little bit to cover what I, I think is pretty significant. And that is in, in the end here, in the last chapter. Hello, Crystal. Hi. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. This is what Paul says. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers. I'm not going to read any more. Where do you come across that phrasing in the New Testament? In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you. Lazarus walk? I don't know. Okay, uh, well, the, the lame man in Acts 3. And, and rise up and walk. Okay, yes. Demons being cast out and people being healed. In which we invoke the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And therefore, in Jesus' name, that is your power of attorney, POA. As Christians, we have the authority of Jesus Christ 
And by us saying in Jesus' name, it's as if Jesus himself were saying it. We ha- Jesus is the Jesus is the one we are represented representing, and we have power of attorney. Now we say in Jesus' name in our prayers, but we don't say in Jesus' name I command you. <laughs> we, that's not how we pray. Okay. Let me give you you know when Peter is, he kneels beside Tabitha, and then he gets up and he says Tabitha, arise, and he commands her. So he prays and then he commands healing. In healings and in casting out demons, in Jesus' name, I command you. All right? That's, that's the same phrasing that he uses in this passage. Now I'm emphasizing this because I think what follows is really important. In fact, he has already talked about it. If we were to turn back to chapter 5, and I said we would do that last week, but not going to touch on it as much as, as we could, but he says right there, look at chapter 5, verse 14. Are you there? 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. He says, And we urge you, brothers, to warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everybody. That word, warn, is... It is a strong term, warn, urge, challenge, warn those who are idle. That word idle in the Greek can mean being lazy and not working, but it also is used, it also means unruly or rebellious. And when you bring these two understandings together, you have a group of people that have chosen to have, you know, Parousia parties, second coming of Jesus parties. We're just, Jesus is coming back. I'm, I don't, I'm not going to worry about engaging in my culture because there's persecution there. I'm just going to, I'm not going to work. He's coming back. He could come back really soon. So why put all, why work so hard? And Paul's challenge, you know, he might not come back in your day. But he, he says, you know what? If you don't work, you don't eat. That's the challenge. You don't work, you don't eat. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, and this is what he says, to keep away from every brother who is idle, lazy, and unruly, rebellious, and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. This is pretty serious. Skip over to... Verses starting with verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Why do you think, is Paul just saying, humiliate the dude? Just humiliate him. I don't think that's what he's trying to say here when he says, so that he feels ashamed. When you feel ashamed of your sin, what's generally the next step? Repentance. Let do this. And it seems so harsh. Don't associate with them. How is that the love of God? 1 Corinthians 5, the issue is not being idle and unruly or rebellious. The issue was a young man sleeping with his stepmom. 
and the church was glorying in their freedom. And Paul says, man, you embarrass me. Ah, oh, no, he doesn't quite say it that way, but he says this, even the pagans don't rejoice in this. What, what? Really? And he says that man, he has chosen not to repent. So it is now time to disfellowship him. Do not associate with him and turn his flesh over to Satan. Don't allow him in your church, in your fellowship, because the purpose is that he will, and I'm going to use Paul's words here from 2 Thessalonians 3, he'll feel ashamed and he'll be brought to this repentance. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will come upon him. That's the goal. The goal isn't to just be heavy-handed and how dare you disobey Jesus and, you know, punish him. The goal is actually for Satan to punish him, for Satan to say, hey, you love this sin? Oh, boy, let's dig into some really juicy sin. And I tell you what, the bottom of sin is despicable. It is shameful. It will destroy you. Um, I forgot to share the story of the young man this past Sunday. I'm going to share it at the beginning of this Sunday sermon. But a man who enters into the NBA claims to be a Christian. He ends up sleeping with five different women and having five babies out of wedlock. And he is utterly ashamed. And the church says, look, you're sinning. And his response to the church was, you're judging me. He destroyed his life and he destroyed his NBA career. It might be on the rebuild, I don't know. But what a shame. What a shame. The goal of something that's really firm like this is not to treat you as my enemy, but to treat you as my brother. And even in, in this process, for it would, it would not be unusual for the church to weep because they do this. Remember the first time I had to spank Kate, I cried. It tore me up. Now, I got over it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Kate, go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, but I can remember that in the goal of disciplining our children is that they will be brought to repentance. It's the heart. It's the heart of this believer. That's what this is all about. And he just lays down the rule. Look. This is in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, don't even associate with those people who totally have rejected what I have said. That is so important. This issue, the heart gets hardened, rebellious, refuses to work. He says, if you don't eat, excuse me, if you don't work, you don't eat. As a pastor, I need to be implementing that. And if someone chooses not to work, and they're not going out there looking for a job. My hands are tied. The church cannot give to them. Because if they don't eat, excuse me, if they don't work, they don't eat. Now that's different. If they're going out there and pounding the pavement and looking and looking and looking and there's no job. And maybe it's how their inter the interviews go. And maybe we need to help them to interview better or any number of things. But they're trying to get a job. That's one thing. But another person who's just sitting back, maybe putting an application in every couple of months. Yeah, that's not work. And there's a rebellious attitude in that, that the Greek word brings up here. And so Paul is really serious about this. Can I suggest to you 
that our welfare system in America is producing this. Okay, Washington Carver said in the late 1800s to the black slaves that had gotten freed, he said, do not receive handouts from the white man because if you do, you will become enslaved again. And I'm going to tell you, it's not just our, our black brothers in which this has happened, but in 1936, for the first time, 36 or 38, the Supreme Court said social welfare is legal. First time. And handouts were already being given, but at that point, with the New Deal, we destroyed the poor in America. And it, we made it so hard for them because we said, if you don't work, we're going to feed you. We'll take care of you. But Paul says, that's not biblical. If they choose not to work, then they will not eat. Now, there were some people who were looking really hard for work. And they worked looking for work, okay? And they could not find it. There was such a great depression. And yes, the church need, I don't know what the church did at this point, um, but we have created a system in America that has made the poor dependent upon the government with, and they have, many of them have an entitled, entitlement mentality that says that the, I deserve this from the government. Now, there are the deserving poor. There absolutely are. The church needs to step in and help as they can with the deserving poor. That is, those who are trying hard to make it. And But there are many, because of our welfare system, we have said, you know what? You can have five babies out of wedlock. We'll just give you more money. Six babies, we'll give you more money. Seven babies, even more. And can they go and get work? They, they can't now. They, they're taking care of seven kids. And we have created this with our welfare system because we have chosen to violate biblical principles. And this biblical principle starts off with, I command you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you. And so um, we should take this very seriously. When we stand before God, what we do, including our work and our attitude in our work, how we've shared Christ and lived for Christ in our work, everything about our work, that is what will be weighed. Okay, How we work and what we do at our work is very important in the eyes of God. All right, I am out of time here, and so I'm going to conclude with that. But um, let's take this seriously. Um, yes. What you accomplish in this life is what God will base his rewards on. That includes our work. When you work, do you work dishonestly? Do you just work with a bad attitude? I just want to get this job done. I don't care about what, how it turns out. That's not the right attitude. Um, I'm going to lie. The boss says, hey, have you gotten the job done? Well, it was half done. Yeah, I got it all done. We're good to go. 
Our character, what we do, who we are as a person is reflected in our work, in our work, at our workplace. Do people know that you're a Christian by how you speak and by the way you act? Because if they don't, I want to challenge you. They need to. They need to know you're different. They need to be able to look at our lives and say, there's something different about this person. They don't cuss. They don't swear. When I make fun of them, they don't get in my face. They smile. They greet people. There's something different about this person. I've even heard them talk about the name of Jesus, whoever that is. And our lives matter in the workplace. So that's what I'm getting at. What we do, generally, we think of when we're, when, when we receive rewards, it's just everything that we did for the Lord, like outside of work, whatever religious work we did. That's not what the Bible says. What you did at the workplace, your attitude, what you accomplished, did you obey your boss? Did you honor him or did you gossip about him in the, in the off, in, in the you know, break room? Um, all of these things, our attitude and how we work, that's what God's going to weigh at the end. Not just, you know, how you evangelized and family life and so on. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Great. Let me close in prayer. Father, we live in a day in which indeed the man of lawlessness may be revealed. We don't know. But Father, if that's the case, would you give us discernment? God, the challenge for us is to love the truth so much we will never stray from it. Never stray from it. God, I ask that <clears throat> no one here in this room would ever stray from the sh- stray from the truth and shipwreck their faith. And that happened to several that Paul talks about in his letters. God, I ask that we would love you so much and we would press into you, not just loving uh, knowledge of truth, but loving the truth giver and the source of truth who is Jesus. And Father, may you be who we want more than anything in this world. And may we cling to you and love you and pursue you. And I, I ask you, Lord, as, as you do this, softening our hearts, winning our hearts, drawing our hearts every day as we yield our lives to you, God, I ask that we would stand firm in the faith. I ask, Father, that we would always seek to work hard, that we would always lift up Jesus, whether we're in the workplace or at church or in a neighborhood, wherever we are, always shine Jesus, that men would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. May that be the way we live, everywhere, all the time. May we always flip that on switch 24-7, We today, at this moment, and throughout this day, I am living for Jesus. He is my passion, my hope, my joy, my everything. So Jesus, just take these truths, plant them in our heart, and may they yield so much good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.